Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 119 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. I want to right off the bat here, thank my newest patron, Lori. She signed up for the $8 level. Again, if you sign up for the $8 or $10 levels, you can uh, have access to, I believe there's like 70 different videos with tabs for licks and kickoffs and all sorts of stuff and some 10 minute a day ideas and different things like that. And on January 31st, um, probably 8 p.m., 9 p.m., I'll determine that as we get a little bit closer. I'm going to have the first ever Mandolins and Beer patron hangout, and we will meet on Zoom or Google Meet. I haven't decided which way will be the easiest to do it yet. And we'll just talk about mandolin and stuff, see what people are working on, share tips, get to know each other, kind of build a little bit of a uh, mandolins and beer community. So that is coming up. And all you have to do is go to patreon.com, mandolins and beer. You can do it for as little as $1 a month. There's $1 a month to $10 a month. It all helps me out getting this podcast up and running and all that great stuff. So thank you so much to Lori and all the other patrons out there. I truly, truly appreciate it. I also want to give a shout out to Steve at Cumberland Acoustics. Um, outstanding customer service. When I got my pumpkin top, my 1916 um, Gibson, I was talking or texting with Andrew Marlin, and he said, oh man, you got to get a Cumberland Acoustic bridge on that thing. So I did, and um, uh, when I, it's been in its case for probably a month or so, when I took it out, a little piece of the bridge had kind of broken, and, and in no time... Steve responded to an email, and within, I mean, over the course, it, it was, I don't even know how many days, because it was a weekend, I think it was maybe Friday when I responded, I think Monday or Tuesday, I had it, he had it all, just asked for the measurements, he had the slots put in, outstanding service, so Steve at Cumberland Acoustic, thank you so much. Speaking of thank yous, Peghead Nation, Peghead Nation has got the brand new course with John Reichman, one of my all-time favorite mandolin players, and he's got the old-time lessons. And man, all the Peghead Nation courses are killer. You've got everyone. you got Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibus, Chad Manning, um, everything from beginner to, to theory. Um, you can also, if you don't want to learn mandolin, if you got the mandolin basses covered, they got guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, bluegrass, old-time jazz. They got some great jazz stuff on there for jazz guitar players, and obviously uh, Aaron Weinstein's jazz mandolin course on there is incredible. You get the high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab and play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And best of all, if you join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now, you get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com, use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Love it. And if you're not following their Instagram, you're missing out some quality mandolin images. And Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player right out there in Austin, Texas. All right, y'all. This episode is great. Um, I didn't know how great of a mandolin player Tammy Rogers is. And when I heard this album, I, I talk about it at, in, in the podcast with Tammy, so I don't want to spoil it, but it is it is fantastic. It's got tone and taste and, and chops and yeah, fantastic. Super nice. You might know her from the Steel Drivers um, as the uh, fiddle player and, and vocalist, but uh, 
This album is fantastic. It comes out on the 21st of January, which is right around the corner. So this is perfect timing. There's some samples of some of the tunes here. Some of the singles are already out, too. If you go to mandolinsandbeer.com, you can uh, find links where you can find Tammy and Tom and all that good stuff. And you can also find out um, what samples are being played uh, on the episode as well. Let's get into it with Tammy, everybody. Cheers. Have a great week. All right. Now it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Grammy Award winning Tammy Rogers. Tammy, how are you today? Hey, Daniel. I am doing very well. It's a beautiful sunny day here in Nashville, Tennessee. And, uh, yeah, enjoying the sun. Yeah, that's awesome, man. How long have you been in Nashville for? Did you grow up there? Oh, my goodness. Um, I did not grow up here, but I moved here to finish college, actually, back in the mid-'80s. And, um, yep, finished up. It was Belmont College at the time. I'm showing my age. (laughs) So finished up there, moved back to East Tennessee for a couple years, and then came back permanently in the late summer of 1990. So I've been here for ah, 31 and a half years now. That's crazy. Wow. It's so crazy. I go there. I I try to get there at least once or twice a year. And every time, I swear, just going there every year, it looks different. I can't imagine living there that long and being like how different it is. (laughs) It is so different. Yeah. And, you know, it breaks my heart a little bit because um, it used to be just a really sweet size and, you know, almost felt like a, a big small town in many regards, but it's definitely not that anymore. No, no, no traffic. Holy moly. <laughs> I, got, I got some mandolin. I got some mandolin work done one time there. And um, the person was about maybe 10 miles outside of Nashville downtown. And they got it done early and texted me, and I'm like, oh, yeah, hey, I'm right downtown just having a beer at a brewery. And they're like, oh, yeah, you'll never make it by the time I leave. I'm like, oh, it's only an oh. hour from now. And they're, they're like, yeah, you'll never make it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I had to go get it yeah. the next morning, but I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I know. It's, I mean, I'm kind of fortunate where I live that I can zip around, and I know what time of day to get out and run my errands and, you know, whatnot, but it's, yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. Well, we're talking today to You've got a brand new album coming out um, on the 21st. It's called Shirley Will Be Singing, and it's with Tom. How do you pronounce Tom's last name? Is it Jutes? Jutz? Uh, Jutz. Jutz. German. German. Jutz. Um, it is fantastic. And I, and I told you before we started this, I, I get a lot of emails from, from like different promotion companies that people are working with when albums are coming out. And I... And, a lot of times they don't always have maybe mandolin on it or they have like one song with mandolin. And I'm like, oh, Tammy Rogers, she's from the Steel Drivers, but she plays fiddle. <laughs> and it's just a duo record. And I was like, I was like, well, it might not. I, I don't know if it'll be on the podcast because there's, I don't know if how much mandolin there is, but I'll listen to it and then I'll email Maria back. And I was like, oh, my gosh, there is tons of killer mandolin playing on this. And I looked at the credits when I got home and it's you. <laughs> I'm yeah, like, yeah, thank you. holy cow. Yeah. Living room. It makes the 
work a little easier that's what she used to say takes your mind above your troubles and it helps you are definitely flattering me but um i appreciate that yes um you know i i didn't really grow up playing that much quote unquote bluegrass style mandolin um it was my first instrument my dad bought a mandolin when i was about five and showed me you know a g c and d little two finger chords um but then I didn't play much again until high school um and then I wasn't very good and didn't you know just it was always very frustrating because I would try to do what I could do on the fiddle and um at, at least for me, it didn't translate very well and it wasn't until believe it or not i I got hired to tour with Patty Loveless in the fall of um, 1990 that I was expected to double on both fiddle, mandolin, and acoustic guitar. Oh, wow. So, uh, and sing background, BGV. So I really had to um, pick up the mandolin and, and kind of figure it out, if you will. And, and true story, I, I got a copy of a Sam Bush instructional um, book and I, I played through all that, you know, because I could read music and I could also read tabs. And I, it, it was great because I suddenly made the connection that when he was playing, you know, say Leather Bridges, for instance. Um, which I think was on his Late Again as Usual record back in the 80s, maybe. And I played through it, and I was like, oh, he doesn't necessarily do exactly the way the fiddle would do. You know, there were subtle differences. And and honestly, um, I don't think I've ever told Sam this, but going through that book, just reading through it, a huge light dawned in my brain. And it's like suddenly things started clicking for me and I started approaching the mandolin more as a different animal than I had all those years ago. And it helped me so much to kind of figure out, oh, how I might do this, even the the same basic melody, but how I might play it on the mandolin as opposed to how I might play it on the fiddle. So, um, so that was really, really an instrumental thing for me to do, to kind of play through that. And then... Then it was just trial and error, you know, and I always, after that, kind of consider myself more of a country-slash-Americana mandolin player because I've played it on tons of recording sessions, and every touring gig I ever had in the country world, I always played a lot of mandolin. Um, almost as much mandolin as fiddle, you know, with um, Trish Yearwood, with Reba McIntyre, all those people, it was always, the mandolin was always a big, big part of what I brought to the table. Um, played it on a bunch of records. Um, but I, I still, still don't consider myself a quote unquote bluegrass mandolin player as much as more of a singer songwriter mandolin. I, I don't know what to call me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you definitely got some bluegrass chops, obviously. There's some, um, it's, it's cool that you say that because on this record, this record is filled with the type of playing 
it, it should probably be required listening for anybody who gets hired to play on an album with great songwriting because it really is they're just the way you fill parts during verses the solos you take are super tasteful but yet they have the double stops they have like um it might even be the first track there uh, i surely will be singing is where there's like a, at right. the very end of it there's just kind of a little cool bluegrass break that takes it back and i'm like uh, th- th- like this album is something if I didn't know who it was and it was on XM radio or playing, you know, on on some sort of random playlist. I, the first thing I would have done was s- paused it to look at who was playing mandolin. That's that's how good I think the mandolin playing is on this album. Oh, my gosh, Daniel, you are too sweet. Thank you. That that really does my heart good. Um, you know, I think partly for me, um, I I've been so fortunate to play with honestly, some of the greatest mandolin players in the world um, through the years. So um, so I know what it's supposed to sound like. <laughs> I, know what, I know what, you know, the instrument is supposed to do. Um, so I, I definitely draw from all those influences when I am playing. But, um, yeah, I, I really use it more as, um, you know, almost more of a rhythm tool, you know, rather than playing – and songwriting with guitar, I do that with mandolin. Um, so anytime I sit down, and especially with Tom in particular, because he's such a, you know, an incredible guitarist, it, it, it way, makes way more sense for me to play mandolin when we're songwriting, um, than to try to play guitar. And, um, with, with fiddle, I can certainly, you know, play melodies and, and drone and things like that, but, I just don't find it as comfortable when I'm songwriting because it's not necessarily um, a naturally chordal instrument. You know what I'm saying? You know, you don't really strum a fiddle that much. Um, I mean, you can. So, so I just, I have just always gravitated um, to playing the mandolin when I write with people um, because I can play melodies and I can influence the chord progressions and, and provide a chordal accompaniment as well. That's um. So, how long have you been playing fiddle? Have you been playing since you were little? Uh, I've been playing fiddle since I was ten. My dad signed me up for the high school orchestra, not the high school orchestra, but just the string program in our school district. Um, growing up, and I played all the way through high school and college, actually, for that matter. Um, and grew up, but he started showing me because we had mandolins and you know guitars and bass and fiddles you know, around the house. So he started showing me my first fiddle tunes after I'd been playing, you know, five or six months. So it was a pretty, pretty cool way to grow up. Yeah, that's great. So do you come from a musical family? Very. Oh, yeah. kidding. Yeah, my parents actually met at a radio station back in the 50s. Get out of here, really? Yeah, my dad was in a bluegrass band and my mom, you know, sang country. And um, there was a local Saturday morning show and that's where they met. So um, what are some tips you would give Again, from you're such a great songwriter. I mean, that it's cool to hear these albums kind of like in a. The album's very sublime sounding to me. Like very, just it's very beautiful, and the the production's great, and it's just got a really good vibe for it. But like for advice, I guess you know you were an adjunct professor at Belmont for one time too, so you've worked with students and worked with mandolin. What are some tips you you would give like somebody who might mm-hmm. be hired for a session? Like, oh, I know a guy who plays a mandolin. Yes. You know, and the local guy's recording is like, well, we should have this guy play on this song. What are some what's some advice you could give somebody who comes into a situation like that? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, well, a couple things. I would immediately, you know, make sure that you know how to read a chart. And by that, you know, if you do anything in Nashville, they're going to set a numbers chart down in front of you. So they're going to set a piece of paper in front of you that, you know, may say, you know, one, four, split bar five, six minor, four, one. And if you don't know what that means, you're going to sit there and be terrified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember the first time somebody said the term diamonds to me, uh, you know, and I, I didn't know, I didn't know what they meant. So I just was like, yeah, definitely. Like diamonds at the top. I'm like, oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no idea what it meant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, most bluegrass players are quick enough with their ear that they can listen to the track and turn around and play it or play along with it and pick up on all those little, you know, subtleties. But, you know, because I couldn't read them when I first started doing sessions. So I was in that same boat. It was like I would sit there and listen to it once and then start playing. But, you know, you can just so immediately fit into a track and also talk with your other fellow musicians in a very succinct way if you know how to read chart. And it just, you know, immediately puts you at ease and on the same page with everybody else when they start talking about, hey, let's go to the turnaround and then let's cut out the last two bars and then let's go back. You know what I mean? It's like if if you can't read that, then suddenly you're like, oh, my God, what? What? What are they talking about? Where do I go? What? Two bars, huh? You know, so it it it, it just really um, can 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 make a huge difference to you. And, and the other bit of advice I always give people is listen to the other instruments around you and be a good team player or bandmate in this situation. And by that, I mean, you know, in, in bluegrass, we grow up playing all the time. Everybody's playing all the time. But if you're playing on in another style of music, that's not always the case. You know, the, the, the fiddle in particular may, may only play on the intros and turnarounds and in the chorus. And you may, they may want you to just sit, lay out in the verses. So that was a huge adjustment to me coming from bluegrass because everybody played all the time. Actually, and that's the thing, um, another thing on this album that I really love and would love like to ask some advice for the people listening to on as well as I think a lot of people, especially in bluegrass and some jams that I've been to, I think people really overdo it during vocal parts of songs, especially verses. I, you know, you know, you want to put fills in there and different things like that. But so many people just play so much. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like you're taking away from the vocalist. You know, what, what's the approach? What's the approach you take on maybe putting some fills in a verse or, or, or in a chorus? Same thing. Listen, listen to where the vocal you know, is and, and how the phrasing and if there's a, you know, a two beat pause, that's where you play. Or, you know, listen even to the register. You know, is, is the singer a high singer, a tenor? Then I might, you know, try to play things that are lower. So not to compete in the same range. Is, is the singer a male that has a lower voice? Then I might play something higher, you know, to complement and stay out of the same, you know, kind of register. So it's all those things. But again, it's, it's listening to what it's listening and reacting, you know, not, not just, okay, I've got this verse. I'm going to play through the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> nope. 
Nope, it's still about listening and responding. Yeah. Yeah, your credits, when you pull them up, you've played on a lot of a lot of great albums. Actually, one album I um, would have never expected, it, it's one of my favorite um, Americana albums, is the Tomorrow the Green Grass by the Jayhawks. Oh, the Jayhawks. Yeah. Yep, played two on that. Yep. Yeah, I love them. That was, I do, too. And that was at a time in my life that I was hanging out in L.A., with a bunch of friends and, you know, kind of in that California country slash Americana. I was working a lot with Maria McKee. I was working with Marvin Epcioni. I was working with Rosie Flores was still living out there at the time. I was doing a lot of stuff with Victoria Williams. Oh yeah. Um, another quirky singer songwriter. So, um, yeah, that was just kind of getting to know those guys and, hanging out and being in the studio one day and they're like, Hey, come play on this. I was like, okay. So yeah, you just never know when that stuff is going to fall in your lap. <laughs> yeah. What was the most surprising, um, uh, session you ever got a call to do? Oh, um, maybe let's see. Well, two. And they're very funny. One is Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond came to Nashville back in the mid nineties and was, songwriting a bunch and did this record called Tennessee Moon and that was bizarre to play on a Neil Diamond record and to hear his voice coming through the headphones it's like holy crap that's Neil Diamond <laughs> yeah um so yes that was that was a bizarre one and then um <laughs> one day I, I was I don't know what I was doing but I get this call and I knew the engineer and he was like hey what are you doing and I said uh hang out and he said well all right, do you have a couple hours? Can you come down to the studio uh, and play on this track? I'm like, sure. And I've always kind of lived pretty close to Music Rose. So I was about 10 minutes away. So I show up, and it was a song for Brett Michaels of Poison. Oh, no way, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was there and, you know, had the the girlfriend that was probably a, you know, Playboy Playmate or something. I mean, it was just bizarre bizarre wow. but, i mean he was nice he was, he was just hanging in nashville writing songs you know so you just never know what you're going to get called for wow that is a trip <laughs> yep yep yeah wow yeah i mean your credits are just crazy and then it must have been pretty wild to play on some like some big country tours like that i mean you said uh it's patty loveless on you and that was like your first was that your first that like big first major Big major tour, yes, 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 yes. Wow, what was that like and to was, to go on that was, from, you know, from not from riding in a van? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it was. I uh, I mean, I was so green; it was just really embarrassing. But but she was so so wonderful and helpful and sweet and you know took me under her wing and I learned a whole lot when I was with her. Um, and definitely the, the other guys in the band were, were so patient with me because I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about gear. I didn't know anything. My mandolin playing was awful. Uh, <laughs> so they were, they were very, very patient with me. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a different, different environment. And, and I definitely had to learn to listen and, um, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I had those experiences and played with a lot of incredible songwriters through the 90s, um, which I think definitely has influenced me 
these days with my songwriting and and playing. I remember working with Kieran Kane a lot in the mid to late 90s. He was the mandolin player with the O'Kanes. And he was one of the first guys that, that I was around. Really, you know, he and Marvin Etzioni. Marvin is another mandolin guy at, based out in L.A. He did a record called Mandolin Man. Just check it out if you don't know it. Yeah, definitely um, going to check it out. And and they both, you know, they would they would play these little two-finger chords. And, and it was like, wait a second, you've got to have that big four-finger bluegrass chop, you know. And I, and I realized you don't. It's a whole different way. And I started figuring out all these different shapes, you know, how to make chords, you know, and open strummy things that, that I just had never, I mean, I just always knew the bluegrass kind of shapes. And it was really an amazing experience to be around those guys and see how they use the instrument as a rhythm thing and how they use the, the instrument, um, you know, just as a different, texture and a writing tool it was it was unbelievably great to be around that it, um it's interesting you talk about that open rhythm thing because one of the guys you would think that is like the most bluegrass of bluegrass guys right now mike compton who's uh just a great player and been on this podcast but somebody posted something to him on the mandolin cafe yesterday just him playing along with the fiddle guy and I'll tell mm-hmm. you what, man, three minutes of watching just one of that of that one hour long video was a, a lesson in rhythm. He is all over with playing like bass lines and moving bass lines and double stops. And, you know, you would just think, oh, he's probably going to chop like Monroe, but not at all. Right. It's amazing. Not at all. No, he he is one of my all time favorites. And and it's funny that you would point out that that solo on uh, Surely We'll Be Singing because I, I was, you know, it's like. You know, WWJD, for me, it's like WWND. What would Mike do? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? Exactly. Um, oh, that's cool. Because on that, that track, it just felt so traditional. And and I, I love that, you know, Monroe thing that he does and the rhythm things that he does. Just I mean, and I can't do it like he does, but gosh, he's genius. I love him. Love, love, love. Yeah, such a great guy. He's been super helpful to me and ever since I started this podcast with with all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, he's great. And have you worked with him at the Monroe Camp, too, or are you working with him? I, I think your name came up when I was doing some research, maybe the 2020. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I did. Um, I was able to go down for, for just two days, maybe. I, I wasn't able to stay the whole weekend because of, you know, still driver commitment. But, yeah, I really enjoyed it because, I, I mean, honestly – those Monroe instrumentals are still probably my favorite fiddle tunes to play. So cool, man. I mean, I just, those are the ones I just gravitate towards. And I, I think to me, their, their melodies are so distinctive. Um, I mean, I'm sure that there's some other, you know, kind of American fiddle tunes that, that I enjoy, you know, Angela and the Baker, Soldier's Joy, you know, Red Wing, some of those, but you know, nine times out of 10, if somebody wants me to play something, I'll call out Road to Columbus or I'll call out, you know, Ashland Breakdown or I'll call out, you know, Roanoke or whatever. I mean, it's just those Monroe instrumentals are just a bomb to me. Oh, for sure. I um I went on a huge Kenny Baker kick and, um oh, you know, Kenny. Oh, the yeah. King. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, so who are some of your like at like fiddle? fiddle people that you um listen to and then we'll and then we'll go to the mandolin people too but as far as like the the fiddle players go 
in, in that kind of genre of music? Who were some of your favorite players? Well, growing up, absolutely, Kenny. I mean, I had, you know, that Kenny Baker plays Bill Monroe. kind of the pinnacle for me i mean that record it just doesn't get any better yeah, it just so does not great. and those songs are just every single track um so that's probably my all-time favorite fiddle record um i was a huge byron Berline fan who also wrote gold rush and recorded sally gooden with bill monroe um but that is one of my biggest influences with scotty selman oh no kidding yeah his his recordings um, with the Kentucky Colonels, you know, with Clarence and yeah. Roland, yeah, unbelievably influential to me. And then the the, the one other guy that I have to mention because, um, just kind of through osmosis, has been so influential on me, and I I, I consider him a, a great friend now. Um, Daryl Anger. Oh my gosh. He's, Stuff he recorded in the, you know, especially in the 70s with Tony Rice and Grisman. Um, just amazing, amazing. So th those four are probably my, my, my big four. Yeah, those are, those are a great four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> How about on the mandolin side when you were, uh, yeah, obviously the Sam Bush book, yeah, you worked through that. Oh, yeah, but yeah. Um, what, are, what are some of the other maybe players that you would, like maybe tried to work on or, you know, did some woodshedding on when you were picking up the mandolin and working it up? Well, I, I was and still am a huge Ricky Skaggs fan. Um, Skaggs and Rice is one of my Desert Island discs. I, I still, to this day, will put that on and listen to it. In my opinion, it is a perfect record. It is a perfect record. And the mandolin playing on that, um, that probably influenced me more than any other for the way that, that I play. I mean, if you listen... Um, to, to some of the stuff on, on this new record, you know, where it's just me and Tom and I'm playing mandolin. I'm totally trying to channel, you know, Ricky's style, kind of the Monroe Brothers style on those types of tunes. But yeah, that that stuff. Um, he he was just anything that Ricky did, you know, in the seventies and eighties. I've I probably have on vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just uh, from from the early stuff he did. I've got the vinyl copies of the duo records he did with Keith Whitley. That's how big a fan I was. 
Nobody can, and I can hear him on a track and know exactly who it is. His tone is so identifiable, you know, Haas, that, that mandolin, it, it's um, un, unreal, unreal. Um, but also, you know, I I loved Mike Marshall. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I can't do that stuff that he did, you know, with the modern mandolin quartet. Are you familiar with those records? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> stuff um you know he started doing the Bach unaccompanied violin stuff before Thiele did it um you know just monster monster player and and tone 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 for days um so oh yeah I mean those are probably my my big and you know for for modern guy Compton you know I mean all those guys are still playing of course but you know, that was kind of the era of player. But I can't wait. I can't forget Tim O'Brien. He's so different, but what, you know, the way he approached it with Hot Rise, just, man, unbelievable. And then he would take out the fiddle and totally, you know, scream on Tom and Jerry or something. Just great, 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 great. Awesome. That's so funny. You're like, oh, I can't forget. If people ask me all the time, who's your favorite mandolin player? I'm like, I don't think I could give you my top 10 mandolin players. I, I know. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> I know. It's, There's so many good ones. Yeah. Well, and then, then you get, get down into style because, I mean, Brent Truitt is one of the most unsung heroes, I think, of modern era. I mean, a lot of people, for, you know. Oh, are you there? Oh, hello. You still there? Yep, yep. Sorry, just uh, changed. Uh, changed. Yeah, my um, phone just flipped. Oh, yeah. okay, cool. Um, but no, I was going to say, you know, he played on two highways on Allison Krauss's early, early records. That was a huge success. Um, you know, he's just played on some really amazing records and, you know, now with the, he's been with the Steel Drivers now for 11 years and I don't know anybody that can bend mandolin strings like he can. I mean, he plays it like a telly. Crazy. Yeah, he's so good. I gotta get so, him. He's been, so on my, he's been on my list of people to get on this podcast too. I gotta, gotta reach out. <laughs> 
he's kind of shy about stuff, but, but he would, you know, he'd be a great one if you can talk him into doing it just because he's, he's just, you know, he, he flies under the radar. I think, you know, he's just really low key about stuff and always gives other people props, but man, he's, he's truly one of the greats in my opinion. Yeah. And he, he did some work. Um, was it engineering on this album or recording? Oh, yeah. 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 Now he's a great engineer, you know, and is had his own studio for 20, 25 years and produced a bunch of great records. So, yeah. When, at what point did you decide, I mean, I'm guessing a lot of people are going to know your name from the Steel Drivers, you know, that's uh, such a great, great band. I mean, and I can't tell you how many times I would say, I would honestly tell you, you guys are as synonymous with bluegrass as, as anyone like Bill Monroe. I have as many people come up and see my duo or trio playing and they'll be like, hey, do you know any Steel Drivers? As much <laughs> as I get anything. That's awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. really awesome. We're like, yeah, well, do we? <laughs> yeah. So Thank how you. did the uh, how the Steel Drivers start up? Um, well, it's a pretty well-known story, so I'll try to keep it short. But <laughs> Mike Henderson, um, the original mandolin player, had been riding with Chris Stapleton for four or five years and just kind of hanging out riding. You know, Mike has always had a, a weekly blues gig on Monday nights at the Bluebird here in Nashville. He's done that for years and years and years. And I think he kind of had it in mind to maybe see if Chris would be into doing like a weekly or monthly bluegrass gig, you know, just to get out and play and play these songs that they've been writing. Um, so it was really Mike Henderson that I think tossed the idea out to Chris. And Chris was like, yeah, why not? You know, I don't think at the time he had much going on besides songwriting. And um I was out with Reba McIntyre at the time, but Mike and I had worked together in the mid to late 90s with Dead Reckoning record label. And so he called me up and, you know, basically said, hey, you feel like, you know, getting together and playing a little bluegrass? And at that point, I hadn't played much bluegrass in about 15 years. I'd just been living in Nashville and doing country gigs and sessions and all that kind of stuff, Americana stuff, really. And um, it's like, well, yeah, that'd be kind of fun. I hadn't seen Mike at that point in five or six years. So he called up Richard Bailey. Um, Richard and I had known each other from our teen years, running around festivals in Texas and Arkansas and Oklahoma and Missouri, that part of the world. And then um, Mike Fleming. He and Mike Henderson had been college roommates. So really it was Mike Fleming that kind of cast the band Mike, Mike Henderson, I'm sorry, had kind of cast the band and made the phone calls and we all got together and it's kind of the rest is bluegrass history. I mean, it was kind of like light tracking that, that quickly. Um, just they had these amazing songs and it was fun. And Chris had this incredible, you know, one in a billion voice and, um, you know, it was just weird. I would have never, if I'd heard him sing, Prior to walking in, I would have never thought that my voice would have sounded good with his and blended, but it did. Absolutely did. Just crazy. Just crazy. I don't know. You can't plan that stuff. It just happened. I love, um, I, you know, living in Charleston, South Carolina here. Uh, Bill Murray is a huge Steel Drivers fan. <laughs> <laughs> we love Bill. Yeah. Is, every time you guys come to town, there's some sort of viral video or a, some sort of story yeah. about <laughs> about him there. <laughs> Shows up or comes out or sends us to his restaurant or something. He's awesome. Yeah, that's neat. That's neat. Now, you've done so many recording sessions. Do you have like a mandolin set up? 
before we talk mandolin gear, like do you have a recording setup that you'd like to use when you do recording? Because I mean, the mandolin, and I know, you know, it comes all down to hands and, and, and tone and all that and technique, but you know, the mandolin sounds just absolutely beautiful on this, this new recording here. And, um, oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I have a Gilchrist A model, believe it or not. Um, the I don't know that I've ever seen another A style Gilchrist, but um, I've had it since '94. Oh, wow, nice. And yeah, um, an old friend of mine, Charlie Darrington, um, who is famous for putting together Bill Monroe's mandolin when it got destroyed back in the early '90s. Um, Charlie worked at Gibson for a long time. He had a music store um, in the early '90s, and he, I would go in there and play his Gilchrist bust <laughs> 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 over one. But you know, again, since I didn't consider myself a mandolin player, I, I couldn't. At that point, they were going for I don't know three, four, five thousand dollars. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't spend that much on a mandolin. You know, I don't even really play one. And um, he called me up one day and he said, Tammy. This guy's come in from, I think he was Indiana, maybe. He said he's he's got this Gilchrist A, and he's got to sell it today. So here's your deal. If you ever want one, you can turn around and sell this thing, you know, six months for a grand more than what he's asking. And I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know. And so I called him back, and I said, pay him. I'll be right down with the check. And I got it for $2,700, I think. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, he, he even said, he said, it sounds as good as any F I've had, you know, in the shop. So having Charlie's seal of approval, I trusted him and, and it really has been my secret weapon for all these years because I mean, I still, if I get called for a session here in Nashville, I walk in with my fiddle and my mandolin and it's that Gilchrist. Wow. And that's it's, awesome. It's just been a joy to have an instrument of that cali caliber, you know, I've always been a proponent of get the best instrument you can afford because you're going to enjoy it. It's going to sound better. It's going to be easier to play. It's just, you know, it's just better all around. So I was very fortunate to be able to scoop that up when I did. I mean, I also have um, a number of years ago uh, stumbled upon a an F4 from 19 that's in mint, pristine condition. And I bought that, and it's fantastic. Um, I don't use it very much because it kind of is a specialized sound with a round hole, you know. Um, but and I do have a newer Gibson um, L5 that I, that I used to play out with Reba that has a pickup on it. The Gilchrist doesn't have a pickup. I've never amplified it that way. Um, and then we've got a Gibson old Gibson mandola and a Gibson mandocello from the teens. Oh, and... do you really you got the mandocello? Oh yeah. Sweet. Well, my husband is a professional guitar player too. So he, he's kind of into having all that stuff around. Um, so, and we've got, a a Washburn octave mandolin and we've also got a Trinity college bazooki. So the whole complement of the mandolin family. So there you go. You uh, got the orchestra right there. Yeah. Yeah. I'll grab, <laughs> grab that stuff. I'm working at home, you know, and the color seems right. You know, it's nice to have all those things around, but, um, back to recording, you know, the chain, I, I used a AKG solid tube mic most of the time on, on this record for both the fiddle and mandolin. And, um, 
I can't remember what mic pre I used. I don't know if it was, uh, we've got a couple API, you know, in a little lunchbox there. Um, so, and through Pro Tools system, hard disk. Um, so that's typically my, kind of my mic chain with an outboard pre and the mic and into Pro Tools. Yeah, that's perfect. Well, it sounds so good. <laughs> I mean, thank you. Yeah, again, I hate to keep saying it over and over again, but I really want people to uh, to listen to this album because it is just a, uh, it's just uh, just everything about it. I mean, it's I, it starts with the songs. How did how did this project come come together for you? Well, and that's an interesting um, thing too because Tom and I had been writing for the last I don't know three or four years almost weekly and um, had he'd kind of become my main writing, you know, co-writer. I mean, I still write with Jerry Sally and Liz Hingber and, you know, some other people here in Nashville. Um, but, but he and I just really hit it off and, and we kind of jokingly a few years ago, we're like, Hey, we should do a, you know, a Tom Tammy record and kind of the stuff that the steel divers didn't record or other bands don't record, you know, cause we had this huge style, you know, huge back of, stack of songs <laughs> right. and, um when covid really locked down um we reverted to to skype writing and and we were able to do that fairly successfully because we knew each other so well at that point and you know there was a lot of trust built in with with that because you can't really play at the same time together which is the big downfall in my opinion of either teaching or co-writing over skype or virtually you know because that's a big part of what I enjoy about co-writing is sitting in a room with somebody and actually playing and coming up with the melody and the chord progression together. But um, we kind of had to, um, you know, figure that out. But we did. And just in conversation one day, uh, we and I think it was Tom that said, you know, it would be really awful to look back <clears throat> over however long this lockdown lasts and, and feel like we didn't do anything except sit on the couch and watch TV and eat <laughs> much food, you know? Um, so he had a home studio and I have a home studio and it just kind of was like, well, let's, let's start recording. You know, I, I can record guitars and vocals here and send it to you and you can add your parts and, you know, just see what we come up with and maybe we'll have a record. And it's like, awesome. Let's do it. You know? So it, it, it really was just um, kind of an organic thing that happened just out of the idea of let's let's do something positive with this gift of time yeah well you did <laughs> thank you absolutely. thank you absolutely and also you know as far as talking about the sounds on the record i have to give another big shout out to brent truitt because he mixed it oh cool yeah <laughs> so you know again great ears and you know he knows what my instruments sound like and and just he did a beautiful job with it so Yes. Was there any one of these songs in particular that might have been a like a spark to be like, you know what, we should do an album of stuff like this? Um, yeah, you know, I I think like um, early on, like the Tree of Life song. The Tree of Life is there for sure. Where we're from and why we're here, the tree of life is evergreen. 
And actually, believe it or not, I originally recorded that with mandolin. It was going to be more like the mandolin guitar um, sound. But we, at the last minute, decided, because we had Mountain Angel on there, that had the mandolin and guitar. You know, there were a couple of others that, that seemed to work better that way. Tom was like, hey, why don't you try a fiddle on this one? Um, but it was really more of that really honest-to-goodness duo thing that we were like, yeah, I think this will work as a record. And then as we got into it, you know, Tom was like, you know, it, it might be cool if we added a few more things on a couple of these, you know, just kind of making, slanting them a little bit more bluegrass, um, just because of my history with the steel drivers and hoping to get some airplay from, you know, more bluegrassy stations and stuff. Um, so we kind of expanded a bit. We may, you know, we're talking about doing another record maybe sometime later on this year that, that really is strictly duo. Oh, wow. And it would definitely be much more the guitar mandolin thing. Um, so, so we'll see, you know. It's funny that you mentioned the, that Skaggs and Rice, too, because I had that in my notes when I was listening. Of like, I'll just like jot things down as I'm, you know, like, ah, oh, this reminds me to try and put a thing together in my head. And that was one of the albums that definitely is like, this definitely has a Skaggs and Rice vibe to me. We're good. Yeah. Then we succeeded. You totally succeeded. Yay! Yeah, that's, that's so fun. Um, you said you write a lot on mandolin, too, when you, when you sit down and write. Yes, almost primarily, you know, almost, you know, exclusively. Yeah, cool. Why is there a particular reason besides, you know, I mean, I, do you write like melodies first, chords first? How does it how does it work for you? Um, it varies. You know, it, it all depends upon the song and, you know, kind of the inspiration. I mean, um, sometimes, you know, I have a little melodic fragment or I'll have a little chordal thing that's been you know rolling around in my head and and sometimes you know more often than not for me it it, it starts with like a phrase or a title or in Nashville we call them hooks you know well you know words in some some fashion and to me words um kind of inspire musical rhythm if that makes any sense. It's like, you know, like, you know, mountain angel, mountain angel, do, 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 do. that, that just the rhythm of the words influenced that groove. So I'm, my, my ears always attuned to, okay, what, what's the, the, the meter of these words and how do how do they best kind of fall into a feel and a groove? So that's that's usually one of the early things that that I latch into. It's like, okay, well, if if the title is um, like "I surely will be singing," that you know, just the 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 role of those words felt like it needed to be, and and kind of the story that we were telling. I said, I think this needs to be kind of up tempo. So it it usually to me starts with a feeling and what type of mood we're trying to create, what type of groove we're trying to create, and then what what is the rhythm of the the phrase that we're working on? What does that imply? I feel like I'm getting a songwriting masterclass here. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Well, I don't know about that, but you know, it's 
to me, that's, that's what locks it all in together. You know, I mean, if you've ever heard a song that you hear it and you go, I, I don't quite know what it is about it, but it just doesn't feel right to me or doesn't hit me right. You know, nine times out of 10, for me, if I really analyze it, it's like the, the words don't line up with the, the mood of the music and the, and the, you know, the, the cadence of the words. When you were working at uh, uh, Belmont, you know, and teaching, what are some, as for, for mandolin player-wise, were there any sort of common mistakes that you would see in lots of newer students or maybe bad habits that people kind of hung on to that you could easily, not say easily correct, because once you're doing it for years, <laughs> you know, but easily spot and be like, oh, you know what could help you maybe with your tone or your technique would be this tweak here. Was there a common one? Um. The pick angle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk, so, uh, what, what were you seeing people do the most um, incorrectly and what you do to help them with that? Well, just, you know, if you really start paying attention to the, you know, how the pick hits the string and the angle that it actually makes contact with the string, that totally changes your tone. So if, if you're if your pick is not, you know, really at a 90 degree angle with the string, you're losing tone. So if it's, if it's bent, you know, if your thumb is almost causing it to, to bend either forward in a forward direction, you're going to slice across the top of the string. You know what I'm saying? It's hard, it's hard to verbalize without showing. Sure, sure. <laughs> Because then you may be attacking the string at more like a 45 degree angle, either forward or backward. And either way, you're losing tone. Do you use a particular pick? I have an old tortoiseshell pick oh, that yeah? I'm neurotic about. <laughs> no kidding. How long have you had it for? Years. I don't, I don't think I play as hard as most, you know, again, bluegrass mandolin players. So I haven't really noticed too much wear on mine, and mine is thinner. My my problem with them back in years past was they were always so thick I couldn't manage it. But this one, a good friend of mine, Dan Dugmore, who's actually a steel player in town, I'm familiar with him. I'm not. Um, he played with Linda Ronstadt and Jackson Brown, and James Taylor back in the '70s. Incredible. He played the steel solo on Blue Bayou. Look oh him up. no way! Whew. Yeah, he had. I was in the studio one day and um, doing a country session and I had lost my pick from a mandolin. And I was like, dang it. And he goes, here, take this one. He said, as a matter of fact, you can have that. Brian Sutton gave me that, but I don't use it or whatever. And I was like, are you sure? And I've guarded it like the Holy Grail ever since then. I've had it for 10 years, but it's small. It fits my hand and it's not super thick. Um, so, yeah, that's my pick. Yeah. What kind of shape is it? Is it a traditional shape or a bigger triangle or? Um, it's fairly traditional. It's not really rounded like a Grisman pick. Oh, sure. It's not, it's, it doesn't have a, you know, it's not like, say, a Fender medium or something, you know, or a Dunlop medium. It's not as pronounced as that, but, but it's more traditional shaped. Is there anything that you, that you have from the fiddle world that you think – mandolin players because you know you know a lot of times if i sit down to learn things or well, i used to I, i'm i try to really spread it out to everything from like sax players and trumpet players to fiddle players 
But, um, you know, we sit down, we listen to mandolin players and try to learn all these different things. But I, I find listening to like, especially Kenny Baker, you know, for me, I'm like, ooh, it's you, you get a whole kind of like you mentioned at the beginning, you know, it's it's a different animal. And are there some things that you think a mandolin player could really listen for fiddle player wise that would help them maybe pick up some tips or, you know, help develop a little bit of a different style? Um, well, I guess, you know, the same thing that, that you just said, listening to other instruments play and, and really being aware of where people place the beat. Oh yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I think there, there's so many different ways you can inform the groove by, and Compton does that, you know, like you were saying, he's not just doing the straight chop and Brent does that too. I mean, he hardly ever does just the straight ahead chop, you know? Um, but there's so many different ways that you can influence what else is going on around you by varying up where you put the beat and how you feel the groove. So, you know, in that sense, and this may be sacrilegious, but listen to drummers. Oh yeah, no, it's a great idea. Put on records and play with different drummers because, you know, you'll play with guys that really are totally locked in with a metronome and put the beat right down the middle. And there are guys that are way more on the back side of the beat. And there are guys that are, you know, maybe pushing the beat more like a traditional bluegrass feel, not really speeding up, but just kind of pushing it ahead. So all those different, you know, awarenesses, I think, are really, really important. Well, this kind of leads to, I've got two more questions left here, and um, I always ask these two at the very end. We've kind of talked a little bit about it, but, you know, maybe maybe there's another thing in here, too, but I... I I have a firm belief that if you just pick up your instrument 10 minutes a day, you're going to get better at it, no matter what. You know, a lot of people are like, I don't have 10 hours to play a day or I can never get better. I have to work, you know, three jobs and and I get it. But if you make the time to pick it up for 10 minutes, you're going to work on something and focus on it. And then also you're going to end up playing more than 10 minutes, I think. You know, that's the way it always is for me. You know, I always pick it up right before bed and thinking like, oh, yeah, I'll just play for a couple more minutes. And then two hours later, <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, yeah. I'm so tired. <laughs> yeah. But if you were to work on something for 10 minutes, um, maybe technique-wise, what is something that you would work on? For me personally, with the mandolin, I would probably work on, well, two things, my tone and my speed. And how would you go about, because, again, uh, you've been working on your tone for for years, you have beautiful tone, but you're still working you. on tone, which is what I think oh, yeah. is why you're an amazing player because you never stop the quest. You know, that's what the big right. thing on all this, you know? Yeah. But so how do you approach, like if you're going to work on tone, what would you, what would you do? Uh, well, again, you know, I'd probably at, for tone, slow things down and really analyze, okay, where, where's my pick hitting the string? Am I consistent with that? You know, so much, so much of, you know, listening to the great players is the consistency. They can consistently do something. It's not like they, they, you know, 33% of the time hit it (laughs) or 66% of the time hit it or 75, you know, they are consistent and it's always great. So, 
you know, I would, I would probably really pay attention to that and, and, and also explore, okay, what colors can I come, come with here? You know, if I play up closer on the fingerboard, how's that going to change my sound? You know, if I play back further closer to the bridge, you know, it gets brighter, it gets more brittle, you know, all those types of things you want to be able to control and have that at your fingertips for when you actually play. Because if you're playing, if you're playing something, you know, like a waltz or something that's really sweet and really pretty, you probably want it to be up, you know, and have that beautiful tremolo up, up the neck, you know, like Grisman did. But if you're playing something, you know, kind of edgy and a little bluesier or driving, you might want it, you know, to have that cutting thing back closer to the bridge. So you want to be able to do that at any time. When you do your tremolo, do you put your pick right on the neck or do you uh, just go above it? Um, it, it kind of depends, you know, I mean, sometimes, again, I don't play very loud in general. So, you know, if, if it's, if it's a delicate thing, yeah, I'll flutter up. There were a couple things where it kind of sounded like you maybe did. I was like, I gotta I ask that. Yeah. 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 Man. And then the last question, it is mandolins and beer. So do you have a favorite beer? I know this is really girly for all you beer snobs out there. <laughs> but I am a Blue Moon girl. Oh, man, I love Blue Moon. <laughs> beer, I like my beer. I like my Blue Moon. Yeah, that's great. That's so, so funny. Yeah, that's I mean, a great one. I like to go, you know, to to breweries and, you know, if there's a good local or something fun, I mean, I'll experiment. I tend to like, you know, if I'm going to do something that's not a Blue Moon, I tend to like something that's a little darker. But, um, yeah. Uh, for just drinkability. Mm. I may go have one right now. Yeah, that sounds awesome. That sounds great. <laughs> well, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, and especially during these crazy holiday times, we had to reschedule. And I really appreciate that as well. Um, I think everybody needs to go out and buy this album on January 21st. There's already a couple singles out there wherever you listen to your music or buy your music. But uh, Surely We'll Be Singing January 21st is just it. It's it's an incredible album. And thank you. Thank you so much, Daniel. I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you.